Welcome to the Fearless Women Podcast. We're inspiring conversations for the unafraid. I'm Janice McDonald, founder of The Beacon Agency, author, and global champion for women. Why am I making this show? Because I want to share the inspiring stories of women leaders in business, arts and culture, politics, and more with all of you. Hear how they've chosen to go forward and be bold and make the world a better place, even when it wasn't easy to do. Subscribe now wherever you find podcasts. Hey, everybody, I'm Janice McDonald. Welcome to the Fearless Women podcast. We have another special edition. Today, I'm joined by journalist and pundit Paul Wells. He's an award-winning political writer, author of two important books, columnist at McLean's, trumpet player, and so much more. Welcome, Paul. Thanks. And thank you and welcome to our listeners from around the world, including USA, UK, Ireland, Italy, Australia, and so many more countries. I'm also excited to share that you can now pre-order my fearless book on Chapters Indigo. Look up Fearless by Janice McDonald at chapters.ca or amazon.ca release date, March 3rd, 2020. All right. Loads to talk about with you, Paul. Let's get right to it. How's your French? Uh, My French is pretty good. How come? Well, because you moved to France to study politics and improve your language skills after graduation. Moving to France is, uh, well, I think it's always going to be a fun move. But how did you decide to take that action? Many of us think about bold moves, but, you know, don't necessarily do it. How did did you know the timing was right? Um, So it was kind of a reaction, as I think some of my big choices have been. Mm. After I had been... Out of school for a few years. So I got my, my I got my bachelor's degree at Western in yep. political science, got a job at the Montreal Gazette mm-hmm. and was lucky enough to stay on after my internship. And then after about three or four years, I could feel parts of my brain shutting down. You just you're engaging with the world in a different way uh, in a professional capacity compared to when you're a student. And mm-hmm. I could feel my student chops getting kind of weak. And so I decided to go back to university and I called an old prof for advice, and he was the one who said, well, why don't you study at Sciences Po, which is the big political science institution, undergraduate school uh, in Paris. And he said, but don't get one of those stupid certificates, get a real master's. And um, so the idea of studying in Paris in French fascinated me. But in the end, I did get one of those stupid certificate <laughs> programs. They have, a, they have a certificate for third-year students, essentially, okay. who are studying abroad. And that's what I got. Um, But it did the trick. So it was one last look back at the academic life, Uh a chance to expand my horizons and and get a context that was not just the Canadian context, Mm -hmm. because you spend a year studying French and European politics in 20th century history. And then, of course, studying in my second language, which was something I had always kind of thought I would Mm -hmm. I would want to try. And so you were already like proficient in French to begin with. Yeah, I, I uh, starting in kind of my last year of high school, I had taken French quite seriously. And, mm-hmm. and uh, um, uh, so you have a, an entrance exam, whether you're kind of fit academically to get in at all. And there's a French component of that. And I got in without much trouble. And then they spend about they spend most of the school year beating the Quebec accent out of me. Uh, <laughs> so now I can kind of. Switch back and forth between mm. a bad French accent and a bad Quebec accent. <laughs> Whenever required. Exactly. So, but you you mentioned, like, how did you make this choice? How did you say, yes, this is the right time? And then what's that advice for other people who are saying, how do you know when it's the right time? 
So starting a few years before that, really as an undergraduate, I, I thought I, I thought I knew what I was going to be doing with my life. I thought I was going to be a doctor. I got very good marks. A doctor? Uh, yes. I got very good marks in school yeah. and was interested in science. And uh, so quite young, like eight or nine years old, I started saying I'm going to be a doctor. Mm. Which and, typically it is a calling, right? Yeah, and, I yeah. think... Um, I don't know a lot of people who fall into it, right? Yeah. Like you kind of have to want to be a doctor. <laughs> so much Doesn't, work. It's not the sort of thing yeah. that kind of happens by accident. <laughs> yeah. The doctor temp agency doesn't give you a call. <laughs> um, and so off I go to Western, uh, which was the closest school to home, um, but was also- Growing up in Sarnia. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, of course, had a dynamite medical school. Oh, yeah. And within five weeks, I knew that I was not going to be a doctor. I was not getting the kind of marks that you needed in pre-med. Okay. So I, I, I majored in science first year, chemistry second year, and uh, promptly began flunking out. And it, and, and it was a bit of a crisis. I had never failed anything, really. And um, I ended up uh, switching, redoing my second year, going into political science because I enjoyed arguing politics with people at my dorm. <laughs> and... Um, and from about that time when I thought, look, so I'm at this point 19 years old, maybe. Yeah. I thought uh, being sure how things are going to work out is not working for you. So what you need to do is go towards your uncertainty. So whenever you're not really sure that something will work, every few years at least you've got to try something like that. So writing for the campus paper, I had no idea whether I had any aptitude for it. I felt like an idiot walking into the campus paper uh, and that worked out, switching into, into political science. Um, uh, some changes I made uh, as a new employee at the Montreal Gazette, going mm-hmm. from one section of the paper to the other, um, and then and then studying in France. It it on the surface it made no sense at all. I mean, I I already had a degree. This wasn't going to lead to another degree. Right. I had a job. I could. There was always a chance I was going to screw that up by walking away from it and so on and so on. And ever since then, I try every once in a while to try something that may not work. And sometimes it really doesn't work, but at least then you're stretching instead of, um, instead of just mailing it in. So your trumpet player. Yeah, that was just, how'd you choose that instrument? How'd you go from, uh, well, what do we, what did we all start with recorder? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I took piano lessons as a kid. Okay. Um, and then, uh, in high school, the, there was a band program. And so, uh, I needed a band instrument and, um, that's not exactly an easy band instrument. No, but it's, it's one you gravitate towards if you're a bit of a loudmouth. as, 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 as. As Wynton Marsalis has said, if somebody in the band steals your girlfriend, it's always the trumpet player. <laughs> and um, I mean, it's a demonstrative instrument, it, you know, and uh, I got much further as a student musician. I mean, I basically stopped studying formally when I left high school. Mm-hmm. I got much further in the band, which is a social setting than I did as a piano student, which is which is solitary. Uh, yeah, solitary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I was not big on practicing for self-improvement or for the love of the music. Ah. But if 
as every time, as long as there was a chance that another kid would show me up at the next time we all got together, that was a very strong spur to practicing. And so that's the kind of negative or competitive side of it yeah. uh, was that I wanted to practice because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be the weak link. Yeah. And then the positive side is there's a, there's a kind of a joy in adjusting what you're doing in relation to the other people around you. Yes. And, um, making something together. Mm-hmm. Um, that collaborative process. Yeah, it's just almost yeah. the, it's, it's almost the opposite of the competitive stuff that, that, that boys do all the time, like, mm-hmm. like athletics and things like that. And, uh, and so even though I walked away from music when I went to university, uh, um, I've kept music close to me ever since then. So I, um, Whatever else I was doing journalistically, I was also writing about jazz music yes. for many, many years. Yeah. You love and it. And then in the last 10 or 15 years, I've been really involved with uh, classical music through the mm-hmm. National Arts Centre. Yeah. And so, and through philanthropy. And so I always have, uh, I always stay close to musicians because one mustn't generalize too much, but I know very few exceptions to the rule that musicians, ca- musicians always have this feeling of gratitude around, around with them. They're, they're always aware that by making their living doing this, they're kind of getting away with something. And so, you know, one of the things that's helped me survive a quarter century on Parliament Hill is being able to walk away from it and hang out with some musicians. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's just a very different feeling. I remember from my days in the music industry that meeting incredible superstars, you know, I think about uh, a global icon, but, a, you know, a Canadian treasure of Celine Dion. Yeah. Talk about a humble and appreciative person when she would meet yeah. people backstage. Yeah. If, if, I mean, if you allow music to give you, to, to, to lead you into ego trips and things like that, then I think at some point you're misunderstanding music. Mm-hmm. So. Agree. So take me back to the 10 year old Paul. What was that boy like? Uh, living in Sarnia at the time? Uh, what were you into? Uh, so you had some piano lessons at that time? So I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm tr- yeah, and, and I was not into those. I, so. <laughs> I learned to sight read very well because I needed to show up at the next lesson and make it look like I had been practicing for a week. So I learned, I learned how to uh, play better, even though I had really not been paying any attention. Um, That's its own strategy though. Yeah. So at that age, I was, uh, I mean, I was a precocious student. I, at that age, I had already skipped a grade from, uh, Second to fourth grade. I never, I never attended That's a third grade. Big one. To yeah, do. and the thing is, pretty it, dramatic. It, two it, to four. It, it was pretty straightforward at the time. My older brother was in the oh, higher grade, and okay, so I was just helps. in with his friends. Yeah. You know, um, but it kind of hung fire, and it it led to some social awkwardness that I didn't even real underst- understand the roots of until many years later. How so? What do you mean? Um, I would think you'd be able to belong and more adaptable and. Uh, like I would imagine it's the opposite. Well, so uh, the, the big thing is, is I hit puberty a year later than everyone else. Right. And I had crushes on girls who were a foot taller than me. <laughs> right. And that, that yeah. I, so I, you know, that was the genesis of a, of a social awkwardness that, I mean, if I kicked it, I kicked it many years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that, none of that, none of that applies when you're 10 years old. When I was 10 years old, I was reading voraciously mm-hmm. uh, and very broadly. Uh, I, I uh, was probably at that age starting to check out science fiction, mm-hmm. which was my main 
the main vein of literature that I, that I followed until I was about 20. And then I, I left science fiction almost completely behind. And the main thing that happened when I was 10 years old, near the end of that year, was that Star Wars came out. And I became a huge Star Wars geek, like just most of the kids in my generation. Mm-hmm. And got all the toys and would distractedly draw X-Wing fighters on my notebooks at, in <laughs> class. Yeah. And, um, and I got everything I could. I, 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 I collected the Star Wars bubblegum cards uh, and uh, I got... Did you have the PJs? Did you have the sheets? No, I, no, we weren't too much in the set decoration in my house. But what I did get was the soundtrack album, mm. which is John Williams writing for right. the London Symphony Orchestra. And that put the sound of those kinds of instruments in my head. And I think had a large influence on me um, being attracted to, to that music and eventually to symphony orchestras uh, in a later life. So, and, and, and like so many things at that age, you don't really pay attention to, you don't really notice how, how big an influence your big influences are. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, out of all the stuff that I would have been doing as a pretty energetic kid, I, playing little league sports, not well. Uh, the main thing was that Star Wars soundtrack album, just the sound of strings and brass and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the big sound of a symphony orchestra was, was, was important for me. So reach for the top. Tell us more. Again, it, um, uh, the the pursuits of a, of a vaguely smart kid. Um, I don't know. You were the captain of the team. Uh, I don't know whether I was the captain of the well, team. I was well, the high Bertie scorer. Bertie said you were the captain of the team. So, okay. I captain was, and high scorer. I was the high scorer. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, what was the appeal of Reach for the Top? Well, mm-hmm. so, um, I mean... We would see it on television, and and it'd be kids uh, not much older than me when we started watching who were on television at a time when not everyone was on no, television. Oh my goodness! And and there was so much less to watch too. No, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. this was a big thing. It was actually on, it's relevant to note, right? Exactly. It was yeah. on the Windsor TV station, which would be one of maybe six stations that we had on our mm-hmm. rabbit-eared antenna TV, and. I mean, curiosity was encouraged in my house. Both of my parents were school teachers. Uh, my brother and sister and I had very different pursuits and none was seen to be. So my sister was more into art. I was more into music and uh, science. And my brother was, uh, you know, quite a successful uh, student athlete. And all of that was cool. None of that was you know, someone had strayed from the path, right? Mm-hmm. We were just, we were just doing our thing. And, um, uh, and reach for the top was there'd be questions about art. There'd be questions about sports. There'd be questions about, about science. And, and hard questions, Paul. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> like you know. these were not questions about, these were specific hard questions. You had to know a range of, of important information. Yeah. And trivial information. You had to At know the like, same who, time, yeah. who, who won the best actor Oscar in 1954 and things like that, you know? So, um, uh, when I got to high school, there was a reach for the top team. I went out for the reach for the top team. And to say the least, there's not, there's not a long lineup to get onto the reach for the top team almost in any school, right? There'd be, you know, 
four random geeky kids would show up and yep. and we were the team you know it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't you didn't a, have to compete it's not like a hollywood a sophisticated movie. <laughs> winnowing process no um and uh and we'd go down to windsor it would be like a day-long trip and was right. part of the appeal that you got to get out of school uh no, <laughs> no? I, okay. no I it's funny i i kind of like being in school yeah but um uh the main thing was uh, the competitiveness thing. Competitiveness is something I could actually be good at, unlike football. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the weird reaction of so many of the other kids who were pretty sure that uh, reach for the top was the nerdiest thing you could do. And they were, so they were pretty sure they should feel a, a certain level of contempt for us, mm. except that we were on TV. Uh-huh. And we were the only people they knew who'd been on TV. So they really weren't sure how to react. Um, that was kind of fun. Absolutely. So, um, what's something you wish you knew earlier? Screwing up is not a big deal. How so? Um, I was, uh, like a lot of kids, uh, who do well in school, um, and do pretty well at the various hobbies that they attempt. Um, and especially be- because I was younger, after I skipped a grade, because I was younger than most of the other students, mm-hmm. and I was still am very self-conscious about not seeming to be competent or uh, or legitimate to be in their number. That sort of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, by the way, you know, women will talk about having this a lot, and you know, this bias idea that guys don't have that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I sort of, I don't analyze these things in a sort of systemic fashion, so I don't know, but I, um, was always worried that if I made a mistake, they would all turn to me and say, yeah, we knew all along that you were fake. Uh Right. So, um, I was, I still am overly sensitive to criticism, you know? I don't know anyone who's kind of good with it though. (laughs) That's true. But then um but then you screw up big. I flunked out of second year yeah. science. I and, and a, a smart guy who right? It's yeah. like what? And then in my career, like that. I I yeah. actually went back to Paris more than a decade ago, kind of a sabbatical year to go and live in Paris and try and and, and so glamorous pedal uh my work as a as a foreign correspondent and, and um it turns out that that basically that was a bad idea. Mm. It, uh, I couldn't really get good journalism done there. I didn't have the access. I didn't have the roots. I didn't, you know, uh, well, you know, so what, like you come home, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and, uh, and you, and you try something else, Onwards. you know? Yeah. And that is something that I wish I had, uh, not that I wish I'd known, but that I, that I wish I had believed it earlier. You know, mm-hmm. um, because if you're defensive, you spend so much time as things start to go badly, you, you know, you cover up for it. You yeah. don't admit it. And yeah. uh, which unravels. Yeah. And it's right, OK yeah. to just it's OK to just say this is not going well. Yeah. You know, um, it's the shortest route to finding another groove that does work better. Mm-hmm. So you've moderated leaders debates in last two <laughs> elections. 
What yeah. advice do you have for women as they're people as they're preparing for an important event like that? So that was another thing that, uh, especially the first time around in 2015, I wasn't sure would work. N- nobody had ever. Yeah, it's a very first. Yeah. Right, yeah. Nobody mm-hmm. had ever organized a debate in a national campaign except for the broadcast consortium of kind of the old line CBC, CTV, global broadcasters. Mm-hmm. And when we announced it, we weren't sure that all the leaders were going to show up. And as I got closer and closer to it, I became more and more certain that my questions would be dumb or that, you know, I'd lose control of it and Tom Mulcair would start beating the other leaders up or something, <laughs> right? And um, I, finally, I, I, what I did was I noticed how much of it was, was close to what I do all the time. Um, journalists asking politicians questions, that, like that's... Your job. Yeah, it's like, it's like dog bites man. It's, <laughs> it's automatic. Yeah. And in a scrum on Parliament Hill, there'd be one of them and 10 of us. And this time there was going to be four of them and one of me. So the proportions were different. But, but in the nature of it, moment to moment, it was, I ask a question, I make a snap judgment about whether the answer is satisfactory or, you know, sufficient. And, and we bounce back and forth. And almost from the minute I realized that this was, um, that, that, that all of the aspects of novelty were things I could navigate, right? Um, I worked with a city TV anchorman on my voice to make it, mm. give me a bit more of a TV voice, things like that. Uh, I worked with an excellent producer, uh, Charmaine Wong, uh, who was working with us at Rogers on uh, reading a teleprompter and on uh, sounding authoritative and on getting out of the uh, moment and into a commercial break, you know, relatively smoothly and all that stuff. So the stuff that you stuff you've never done before, you can you can navigate, and then and then you start to notice how much of it you have done before. You know, I talk about foreign policy and economic policy uh, all the time. I am not better than anyone, but I'm not worse than anyone at, at, at discussing these mm-hmm. things. And then, so by the time it actually began, um, what surprised me was how it didn't feel like a strange world, you know? And then people judge for themselves, whether it was a success or whether it wasn't. I, you know, I suspect that m- most people would say the 2015 debate went very well and that the 2019 debate was a bit more problematic, led by the fact the prime minister didn't show up. But like to some extent, who cares, right? Like we did it and then it, it's out there and people can establish their own relationship with it or ignore it. Some pretty uh, practical takeaways, though, to uh, in terms of confidence to be able to realize all the things you have done and how they're relevant, but equally to go and get help in the areas that are new. Um, or improve, if you will. Yeah. So another thing that I learned probably later than a lot of people is, is kind of get over yourself. Right. Like if you need if you need help, get help. If you you know, I said to both of my stepkids when they were uh, uh, at that age where they were doing their first public speaking and they'd be just absolutely petrified. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, because normally this is a process. There's a few weeks of kids being hauled up and giving their speeches. <laughs> right. And so I said, OK, so who spoke today? And they say, well, like, you know, Timmy. And I'm like, OK, was Timmy's speech any good? I said. And they'd say like, well, I guess so. 
And did Timmy screw up at all? I don't know. I'm like, you didn't really care whether Timmy was going to be good or not, did you? And they'd say, no, not really. You're mostly just waiting for the class to be finished or worried about your own speech or upset because somebody was, you know, telling tales on you. Yeah, no, that's basic. And I said, okay, that's how everyone else thinks about you. Right. right. They don't care whether you That's do their that. own stuff. They're not waiting for you to make a mistake <laughs> so they can like dance on your grave. Mm-hmm. That None of that, is, you know, and uh, that's one of the few pieces of advice for my kids that I think they probably actually appreciated <laughs> because once you realize that no one else is hanging on your performance, mm-hmm. then it's, it's, it's freeing. It's very freeing. You know, mm-hmm. you just, you just do as well as you can yeah. and don't sweat it. So uh, role models, mentors, champions, have they been significant in your life and career? Uh, a few important teachers. Grade six teacher taught us um, the parts of speech and made us analyze sentences and made kind of everyone who went through that class a good grammarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, a French teacher in high school who brought in Franco-Ontarian poets and had to study the poetry for a month before the guy came in to do a recital of his poetry and uh, talked about what it was like to try and get service in French at a bank in Sarnia and made me understand that um, French wasn't just a language, it was a culture. It was a, set of, it was a set of cultures. It's places all over the world where people are triumphing or struggling in another language. And that gave it an importance that, made me take it more seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then prominent people out in the world, uh, just people who are good at what they do. So as a young trumpet player, I, I um, became fascinated with Wynton Marsalis and, and, and his work promoting jazz and, and a better understanding of its uh, relationship to American culture. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, who was not just a great leader, but who, who, who used language and the elements of argument to rally people. I mean, when Michael Jordan, I don't care. There's not many things I care less about than basketball. But a lot of the jazz musicians I admire were fans of Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. So he retired and went off and played minor league ball for a season and was bad. And then he came back to the Chicago Bulls before his second retirement. When he came back to the Chicago Bulls, I probably watched about half of the Bulls games on TV for like two years uh, just because I wanted to see somebody who was at the at the at the summit of their craft. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just Michael Jordan. It was Scottie Pippen and 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 um, Tony Kukoc, the big Yugoslavian guy they had. And the whole I mean, I Phil Jackson, the coach, mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I learned Legendary. a lot about yep. the Chicago Bulls so that I could understand the environment within which Michael Jordan was playing. And then when he retired again, I stopped watching basketball. I haven't watched five games since then. Wow. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, my role models, the people I try to model myself on are people who are just really good at what they do. So having a network, mm-hmm. obviously very important to your job. Yeah. What, uh, what's your advice or what are, what are tips anyways for people that want to get better at, um, expanding their network and maintaining it. Um, So you learn from the best in the field and the best in other fields. And you also 
always should try to learn from the people around you. I remember early in the Montreal Gazette, uh, a friend of mine was working there as an intern and we were all out one night talking about who we admired within the newsroom. Mm -hmm. And I named two people and I, I said, I think they'd be a little surprised to learn that I view them as role models because we didn't get along well at a human level, like the, the office politics were lousy, but I liked their writing and I thought they were, you know, and then my friend said that nah, like my friend was very ambitious, right. And was hoping to be at the Washington post or something. Right. He said, I don't think there's anyone here that I could really learn from. I'm like, well, then you then you won't. Right. Like <laughs> talk about a missed opportunity. You just guaranteed yeah. that mm-hmm. you won't learn while you're here, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so Godspeed on your path to the Washington post, be, but I don't think you've begun well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, and you should always try to be the kind of person you hope you hope will help you, right? So mm-hmm. I try sort of the pay it forward. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Mentor is a loaded, loaded term. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds self satisfied, but I I try to be helpful to colleagues. Yeah, I try to let uh, talented young colleagues know that I think they're talented. Uh, I mention uh, to other people in the management team that, you know, so-and-so is not just another time server, that they, they, they have this specific thing that they can do really well, you know? I mean, in journalism, which very often feels like uh, the whole industry is just plummeting off a cliff, mm-hmm. um, it's more important than ever to be of service to the extent you can to those people who you think are promising. So we know the, the changes that are coming and the disruption, but what are you hopeful about? Like what's the good side of all the change that's happening in the industry? Um, If anything. So journalism has always been kind of about two things, telling a good story and fighting injustice. And, there are people who are as energetic and engaging and tenacious at those things today as there ever were Mm -hmm. during the, I mean, I've been in Ottawa 25 years. I've been a journalist 30, 30 years and there are cultural differences, but, but the level of the best journalists is, is as good as it ever has been. And, um, I spent a bit of, I spent part of the summer reading current literature. Mm-hmm. What are you reading? I tend to read uh, nonfiction stuff that's more a- applicable to my work mm-hmm. and so on. And I wanted to check out kind of who's good right now. Who are people talking about? And I read a couple books that were kind of false starts and misfires. I read The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, mm. which is about um, a deeply abusive reform school in Southern Florida uh, where by the time they closed the place down, they found that 55 boys uh, had been uh, killed or died through mistreatment and were buried in unmarked graves out back. And Colson Whitehead himself has um, drawn the parallels to indigenous schools here mm-hmm. uh, in Canada. Um, but, and so that was rewarding. And, and especially because he doesn't just treat it as a uh, obviously an outrage, but he also 
approaches it as a writer. And there are some interesting structural things he does to make it a more surprising book. And uh, it reminded me that um, y- y- there's you're never at a point where um, you can only go on the urgency of your emotion. You also have to think about how am I going to deploy my stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, the, 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 the book that got me really excited was this um, – uh, there's a there's a writer at the New York Times named Ta- Taffy Brodesser Ackner mm-hmm. who writes uh, snarky celebrity profiles for the Sunday magazine and uh, was in trouble in the spring and summer because she gave an interview where she said, I don't get out of bed for for less than four dollars a word. And so uh, there's Which immediately- is a play on that. Cindy Crawford or Cindy, one of the supermodels who no, I think it was Naomi Campbell who said I wouldn't get she wouldn't get out of bed for more than. For less than ten thousand dollars a day. Oh well, now there you go. So it's it's a cultural. There's a cultural. Well, that's what I'm thinking. That I, I rem- that was I quite a you, famous I, quote. I bet you're yeah. right because that's the sort of thing that Taffy would uh, uh, would uh, want to evoke. But obviously, people got very upset at her because people who are barely making a, a living right. were very upset at her for. Um, and then she had a new novel out. I said, "Well, I'll go read her novel, see what it's like." It's called Fleischman is in trouble, and it's about a guy whose marriage has collapsed. Mm. And uh, he's uh, kind of enjoying being a bachelor. And, and he's uh, so he's on the dating apps and he's living a, a carefree, consequence free life. And then his ex wife drops the kids off at his house and then vanishes from his life. And nobody knows where they are. And suddenly he has to reconcile the, all the responsibilities he thought he didn't have to worry about anymore with this other life. And, 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 yeah, and it and it, the the book is like a very light social satire. It's laugh out loud, loud funny, page after page after page, and over time, it becomes a a much more sure footed critique of of the emptiness of a lot of modern life. It uh, becomes a much richer book emotionally. You realize that she really cares about all these people. She's not inventing this louse uh mm-hmm. so that she can then dump on him mm-hmm. uh it's more layered and then in the last third of the book you find out what's been happening with the ex-wife and the book becomes about five times as big a statement as it had been mm. up until then and um so my point with that is what do I, what gives me hope um somebody writing uh uh uh, somebody I'd never heard of before May, I think, writing a novel that I think is about as ambitious a social novel as, say, The Bonfire of the Vanities mm-hmm. was 30 years oh, ago, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and, and and the realization that there's still really exciting, really uh, risky and skillful work still to be done. And the more of it is done by people who aren't me, the better. Like, I, you know, I don't need to, I, 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 I very much still enjoy being a spectator. Mm-hmm. I just know what I've added to my uh, <laughs> upcoming reading list. So thank you for that. Anything else that has you excited? Um, well, I got a pretty good day job. We've got a new minority government in Ottawa, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, the big second chapter of Justin Trudeau's time in office. I was awfully critical of this government in the in the last year after being not terribly opinionated about it for the first chunk of time. And I'm curious to see how this government evolves and how this prime minister evolves. I really do think that he took 
sometime after the election to try and adjust, to try and be uh, introspective and thoughtful about what to do next. Mm-hmm. But reflexes are reflex and instincts are instincts. And, and, and so I think that puts a limit on how much he can change as prime minister. So I think he's become a more interesting prime minister uh, for better and for worse in the last year or so. And uh, following that, chronicling that will be an interesting professional challenge. So final question, Paul, Yeah. what's your dream for Canada? Um, that Canada will have the courage to become more like itself or more like its uh, founding ideals. So it's founding ideals, a, a place with people from all over who would use a common understanding of a few basic rules, the constitution, the British constitution to continue building a society of just unimaginable complexity on this land, which means that we share this land with people who were here before we were. And uh, we consider the land, the natural environment in our choices. And we think these things through and act deliberatively rather than like the hot-headed revolutionaries to the South. I, I think Canada was a pretty good set of decisions in a difficult circumstance. And all it needs is for people to remember that those were good decisions and that more of them uh, will help uh, rather than reinventing the wheel. It's a beautiful dream for Canada. Thank you, Paul. It has been an absolute pleasure having the award-winning political writer, author of two important books, columnist at McLean's, again, trumpet player and great friend, Paul Wells. Thank you so much for being on the Fearless Women podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We want our community to grow. Tell your friends, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for our newsletter at fearlesswomenpodcast.com to get the early scoop. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors, 30% Club Canada, BDC, Lockheed Martin, Export Development Canada, and ADGA. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite app. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. I'm Janice McDonald. Stay fearless. Thank you to the 30% Club Canada for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. The 30% Club believes that gender balance on boards and in senior management not only encourages better leadership and governance, but diversity further contributes to better all-around board performance and ultimately increased corporate performance for both companies and their shareholders. Want to learn more? Visit their website, 30percentclub.org, and select the Canada chapter to find out about membership, supporters, and key resources. Thank you to Export Development Canada, the international risk experts, for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. Supporting Canadian companies of all sizes succeed on the world stage. EDC takes your worries away and helps you grow your business with confidence. When your business has no borders, neither does your potential. Find out more at edc.ca slash women in trade. 
Thank you to BDC, the bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. We love smart companies that want to amplify women's voices. For more information, go to bdc.ca slash women.